Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I am one of the hosts. Today, I interview Dr. Cristina Sivantos, author of the book Hamon and Halal, Lessons in Tolerance from Rural Andalusia, published in 2022 with Amherst College Press. Cristina Sivantos is a professor of Hispanic and Arabic Literary and Cultural Studies at the University of Miami in Florida. Her research focuses on Arabic-speaking immigrants in Hispanoamerica and Spain, South-South relations between Latin America and the Arab world, empire and coloniality, nationalisms, memory studies, and tolerance. She is the author of Between Argentines and Arabs, Argentine Orientalism, Arab Immigrants, and the Writing of Identity, published in 2006. Another title, The Afterlife of Al-Andalus, Muslim Iberia in Contemporary Arab and Hispanic Narratives, published in 2017. And the book that we're uh, talking about today, Hamon and Halal, is um, available online, open access. So please um, go ahead and look for the title. I also recommend uh, the print version has a beautiful um, cover. And I will also add in the uh, on the interviews post, I will also add websites, um, URLs for Christina Cervantes' uh, faculty and uh, personal websites for your information. So welcome, Christina. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. I am so glad you're here. And uh, first, I want to know a bit more about you before uh, we start with the conversation about the book, uh, but also besides the book, because I read in your book how interesting your background is with, between Spain and um, and Cuba and Latin America and uh, how um, has that influenced your professional career and how you became uh, the professor that you are today. 
Sure. Uh, so yeah, my my mother's side is all Cuban, and my father's side of the family they came they would go back and forth in successive generations between Havana and a very small town in the Alpujarra, which is the region that this book focuses on. And um, but I grew up in Miami, and it's uh, for anybody who has been to the city, it is a crazy um, conglomeration of many different cultures, mostly from, you know, the Caribbean and Latin America, but uh, it's common to hear, you know, not just English and Spanish, but also uh, Haitian Creole, French, Italian, German. Um, So growing up in this uh, world, which, you know, was mostly in my little world was mostly the contact between English and Spanish from various different parts of the world. Um, I was always very curious about, you know, how do how do languages affect each other? How do cultures affect each other? You know, what happens? Is it, you know, can it be more harmonious or is there always going to be uh, friction? And um, so this interest in cultural contact led me to uh, pursue a doctorate in a field called comparative literature. And because I was interested in... Um, the Arab world and the Hispanic world, I initially focused on medieval studies because that was the obvious uh, major connection between them uh, during the medieval period in Iberia. Um, But uh, I soon realized that working on ancient manuscripts was not for me. And um, I shifted more towards uh, migration studies and historical memory, um, and this actually, the my background in medieval studies came back in my second book, *The Afterlife of Al-Andalus*, when I picked up a thread that was present in the first book on Arab immigrants to Argentina, which was references to that medieval period in Iberia. Um, what's sometimes referred to as Muslim Spain, um, but is, you know, the period of Muslim rule um, from the 700s till 1492. And um, that book, The Afterlife of Al-Andalus, looked at what can be called medievalism, which is how that medieval period is recreated and used in the contemporary era, in our era. Um, and one of the, the issues that I focused on, particularly in the conclusion of that book, is tolerance, because the period of uh, Muslim Iberia, or Al-Andalus, as it's known in Arabic, uh, is one that's often referenced as either a time of great uh, cultural, sorry, of, of great religious conflict, if people focus more on the Reconquista process, where the Christian kingdoms um, reconquered the the peninsula through a variety of different alliances. Sometimes there were even alliances between Muslim and Christian kingdoms. So it's not as neat a picture as it's usually presented. But in any case, that whole period uh, is often referenced as one of religious conflict. But Al-Andalus itself uh, is generally associated with 
uh, cultural harmony and a period of coexistence between religions. So I was interested in, you know, how this uh, image of Al-Andalus as a place of peaceful coexistence is used today to talk about cultures in contact. And that led to this uh, new project on that focuses specifically on the Albujarra region of Spain, uh, because I have, because of my family background, I've, since I was a, a late teenager, I've been visiting the town that my father's family is from, called Orjua. Uh, and I was amazed by the changes that I was seeing there over the decades. Um, it, you know, it was a very small town that's considered to be part of this uh, very regional culture that is seen as very traditional, Catholic. And little by little, I was seeing, you know, the number of British expats in the town was growing. A lot of people um, from Britain and other parts of Europe, as well as other parts of Spain, who were settling in hippie communes or alternative communes on the outskirts of the town. And then also um, a few North African immigrants and a large community of uh, Sufi Muslims who are converts, European converts, to a particular branch of Islam known as Sufism, the mystical branch of Islam. So um, I was seeing all these changes and contrasts in this town and thinking, you know, is there a way that I could try and write something about this? I would love to, you know, to try and... Um, connected to my academic interests, but I hadn't really found a, an angle. And then one day, um, a cousin in the town showed me an episode of a Spanish television series called Radio Gaga, um, where they went and focused on, you know, the whole episode was focused on the town. And there were so many things about the way that they presented the town that struck me. Um, and, you know, things that I saw as problematic or, you know, just fascinating that I, um, that was sort of my entry point. And I started looking for other television programs on the town. And I was shocked to find that this little town of about six, maybe eight, max 8,000 residents um, has about seven television series dedicated to it, just, you know, in the last... Uh, 15 years or so. Um, so that in and of itself seemed <laughs> noteworthy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's how I came to the project. Great, thank you. I'd like to start talking about the book now. Could you tell us about the title, Hamon and Halal? Yes, sure. Um, so Hamon refers to uh, probably one of the most well-known uh, Spanish foods, which is um, uh, jamón serrano or that, well, that is the specific subtype, but in any case, it is a air dried uh, pork product, you could say. So it's a leg of ham that is hung up to dry in a very uh, dry, cool climate, such as that found in the Albujarra region. 
Uh, and then, um, so it's never actually cooked. It's, you know, cured. And it's very emblematic of that region and of Spain in general. Um, the, you know, <laughs> ham and, uh, you know, any, any pork product and wine have a very particular history in Spain because um, of that um, Muslim period that I referred to before, where um, when initially there were uh, conversions of mass conversions of Muslims to uh, Christianity because that was the way that they could stay in the Iberian Peninsula. And a way of demonstrating that you were really Christian and not just pretending was to drink wine and eat pork in front of other people. So in that way, and this is something, you know, that other people have studied extensively. Um, it became, that's how it, those foods became so uh, critical to Spanish identity. Um, the reason that I chose that title, well, and then let me say a couple words about uh, halal, which uh, I think nowadays people are more familiar with the term, but it's basically the Muslim version of Jewish kosher. So it's the dietary laws that um, many Muslims follow. Obviously, as with all religions, you know, there's some people who are more strict than others, but um, it's the rules about, you know, what is considered uh, permissible to eat and what is not considered permissible to eat. And pork is the number one thing. Well, sorry, pork and alcohol actually are the, are the two, number one and two items on that list of uh, foods that are not to be consumed by Muslims. The reason for the, I mean, the reason that I chose this title is because on the one hand, there were a lot of issues of food preparation and dietary restrictions that kept coming up when I would talk with um, people in the town, uh, you know, Muslims who were talking about how they were trying to maintain um, a halal lifestyle or permitted lifestyle in the context of this area where people uh, drink a lot of uh, alcohol and eat a lot of pork. But also I found it to be a really um, apt metaphor for the way that these communities, the, the smaller communities within the town create boundaries and rules of what is acceptable and what is not. So I guess here I should mention um, what's referred to sometimes as the paradoxes of tolerance. Um, one of these is that if a society is just tolerating everything, then in fact, intolerance is what will dominate because there will be nobody to keep intolerance in check or nothing to keep it in check. So similarly, you know, the inverse of that is that there has to be some form of what we could call intolerance, you know, in certain contexts in order for there to be a tolerant society. In other words, there have to be rules about what will be permitted and not permitted. And what I try to emphasize in the book is that tolerance is about, it's a process of negotiating the boundaries between what can and cannot be tolerated, you know, what a given community decides is acceptable or not. So in that regard, the concept of halal became a metaphor also for where uh, people decide to, you know, to mark boundaries between what's acceptable and what's not. 
And then, um, as I alluded to earlier, it's also the idea of these contrasts that have come about in the town. Um, because whereas before the region was only associated with Hamon and traditional Spanish culture, nowadays there's, um, you know, the, the region and especially the town of Orjiva have become just as known among certain circles for its variety of halal restaurants. Um, and in fact, the last time that I went uh, to the town last summer, I saw that during the preceding year, a new butcher shop had opened. It's a halal, specifically a halal butcher shop. There's other uh, grocery stores in the town that sell halal uh, meats, but this is a dedicated halal butcher shop and it's called Carniceria Halal Alpujarra. So, you know, it joins together Halal and Alpujarra, which for, for many people, Alpujarra is synonymous with jamón. So this interesting pairing is very paradigmatic of the town and the region and of changes that are taking place in Spain as a whole. So now that you mentioned uh, the Alpujarra, could you talk a little bit more about the region and why is it so central to your study? You've mentioned a few elements already. And then perhaps you can tell us how was, uh, you know, how has this uh, town, Orjiva, been represented or been chosen also to be uh, represented in some of these visual and written narratives and then the oral histories that or oral narratives that you have also brought into the book that are very um, characteristic or that kind of feature this this town of the Alpujarra. Yes. Um, the I think what makes uh, Orjiva and, and the Alpujarra region in a, in a, as a whole very interesting is the role that it has had in Spanish history. Basically, between 1492, when uh, the... Uh, Catholic monarchs took over the last um, Muslim-ruled area, the Emirate of Granada, and the time in the early 1600s when the last of the uh, people of uh, Muslim origin were expelled, the Alpujarra region in and of itself had a very prominent role in Spanish history because the last Muslim ruler who was... Um, ousted from Granada, Boabdil, he was sent into exile in the Alpujarra region. And it's also the last site of a rebellion against the Catholic monarchs. So that rebellion that occurred, there were two rebellions, um, one at the end of the very end of the 1400s, beginning of 1500s, and then a bit later in the mid 1500s they were successfully quashed by the Catholic monarchs, and that's seen as the completion of the Reconquista process. So in, in nationalist accounts of you know, the rise of, uh, of Spain as we know it today, that's considered you know, the major uh, milestone in, uh, in completing this Reconquista process that's seen as the foundation of Spain. So in that regard, the Alpujarra has always had this uh, important uh, role and a very particular image among Spaniards as being a place that 
where, you know, uh, Catholicism was solidified, but also the last holdout of the Moriscos, who were Muslims who were converted to uh, Christianity, but remained in Spain until they were also ousted uh, in the in the final uh, expulsion decrees. Uh, so, because of this mix of you know association with Muslim rebels who were then romanticized in 19th century literature and uh, the role of the region in the Reconquista, it's taken on, uh, you know, in many different accounts, this aura of remoteness, you know, a place that where traditional culture remained untouched and also intertwined with that, the idea that there were still a lot of Moorish culture there. A lot of legends about um, Moors having remained there. And this is an area of, you know, that's a fascinating area of research because there are records showing that there were more um, people of Muslim origin who remained in Spain than was previously recognized. But a lot of this took expression in different types of legends about the region and also an image of it as being primitive. So this is also related to the distinction, you know, the efforts of to distinguish between Europe and Africa and the creation of civilizational hierarchies. You know, the idea that Europe is more advanced and, uh, you know, somehow simply better than Africa. So this takes expression in a, you know, like a chain of hierarchies where, for instance, the French would traditionally look down on the Spanish as being uh, more barbaric or closer to being African-like, in part through this contact with the Muslim world or having been part of the Muslim world. And then the rest of Spain sort has a tendency to view Andalusia in that way as a region that's more backward uh, lazy, etc., and then within Andalusia, the Alpujarra region is often seen as the place that's you know full of, let's say, more quote unquote backward people, more primitive, etc. So this sort of hierarchy has also had a role in how the the region is viewed. And during the 18th century and especially the 19th century, there were a lot of um, travelers that would come from. Britain, France, and also from other parts of Spain who came to the region, uh, to the Alpujarra region, and wrote narr travel narratives that emphasized that Moorish past and the primitiveness of the area. This continued up until around the mid-20th century uh, with a famous work uh, by Gerald Brennan about uh, a town that he lived in, in the Alpujarra. And even in some more recent uh, travel literature and popular histories about the region, you can still see this emphasis on preceding historical periods, which I find very curious because there's the area has changed so much in the last 30 years, but there's almost nothing written about that and or almost no attention paid to that. Instead, uh, Spanish authors of, you know, uh, histories written 
in the last 20 years or so have still focused more on that Moorish past. So that's in terms of travel writing and historical narratives about the Alpujarra, where where the change the recent changes are registered primarily in these television uh, shows that I mentioned earlier. So these are narratives about the town that focus a lot on this concept of multiculturalism and tolerance between the different groups in the town. So they'll often focus a lot on the presence of this um, Muslim convert community and how it relates to the rest of the town, etc. But what I found was that these television shows present a very um, hyper-positive view of the town without actually getting into how it is that people relate to each other. And how do they maintain the level of harmony that there is in the town between these two different groups? So they tend to mask the tensions and the power differentials that are there. And in my view, that weakens um, the, you know, the potential for a dialogue that could actually occur here. Because it's an amazing opportunity for understanding more how peaceful coexistence is created and maintained instead of remaining on a superficial uh, level as, uh, as those shows do. And then in terms of the oral narratives, um, it was fascinating to have people talk to me about, you know, their experiences in the town and also just sit and, and observe conversations that were unfolding in front of me. And the, the types of terms that, that kept coming up were ones of, of parallel lives uh, different, you know, whether I was talking with uh, British residents in the town or uh, Alpujarreños, you know, locals who had lived there for generations, um, they all would mention that each community within the town kind of kept to itself for the most part and led parallel lives. But they also mentioned how they negotiated the contact between the groups and the boundaries between them. So the, uh, this is how that I connected it to that idea of halal and how limits are set between groups and how people decide what will be accepted and not. And that this is in fact the crucial part of creating um, harmony in any, you know, anywhere where different groups come together. So some of the more interesting things that came up, for instance, just to, to create a, uh, a contrast between the types of narratives that I was seeing in one of the television shows, uh, there's an interview with a baker and his wife who are um, from the region for generations. And they're talking about some traditional sweets that they make and they're traditional to the region and they describe that these are actually from an ancient cookbook that they that their family found, and they are um, mosara desserts, which means um, from the community of Christians who lived under Arab rule in the medieval period and took on you know the Arabic language and many different cultural elements, including food preparation. So 
they referenced, uh, you know, that uh, origin of these desserts and sweets, but they ne- it never occurred to them <laughs> to mention that there's also uh, Moroccan immigrants in the town who make almost like very similar sweets and market them essentially towards the um, broader Muslim community, which is uh, the convert community in the town. So really that historical element is part of something that's going on today as well. Uh, So it's interesting to see what some people in the town are aware of or recognize and, and don't. And then on the flip side, uh, one of the more interesting conversations I had with uh, someone who lives in the town it was a conversation with a young man who's what's called a uh, mana. Uh, in English, it would be an unaccompanied minor. So he arrived from North Africa as a teenager and was placed in the center that is also another element of the town that I didn't refer to that there is this center for unaccompanied immigrants, unaccompanied minor immigrants, right on the outskirts of the town. And uh, most of them are, well, they're all uh, young men, and most of them are from North Africa, others from West Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa. And as a result, they go to the high school in the town and they participate in other activities there, or they'll get... um, jobs as internships working in the town. And some of them have chosen to stay in the area after they finish, you know, after they become adults and are sort of released from the program that the government offers. So I was talking with this young man who's now um, around 19 or 20. And he was telling me that about some of the difficulties that he faced living in this area, in this region that was um, where, you know, there was so much pork. And he said that he still, he did drink alcohol because he had, you know, was used to doing that in his home country. And it's sort of a cultural norm there, but that he did not want to eat uh, pork. And he had found out that from a friend who worked in a restaurant, that it was really common to uh, prepare the foods side by side. So there was no way to guarantee that if he ordered a tapa or, a, you know, a little, accompaniment uh, with his drink that was that didn't contain pork, there was no way to guarantee that it hadn't come into contact with it in the kitchen. So his rule was that he would order a beer, but tell the waitress that he didn't want his th- the tapa that would normally come automatically with it. So I was struck by how he had negotiated this situation that he was comfortable with. He had found a way to feel comfortable with his uh, practice of Islam in this context by, you know, taking the drink, but not <laughs> the tapa. In any case, I was very happy to tell him that the restaurant that we were at is actually run by uh, a, a Muslim member of the community and they don't serve any pork. So he could very uh, happily order a tapa there without any problem. Uh, but anyway, so these are some of the contrasts uh, that came up and just uh, to round out the story of this young immigrant, what he was, his final conclusion was though, that 
the town gave him a space in which to practice Islam the way he wanted to and to feel very at home. He said all his, you know, his Spanish friends were very accommodating and would prepare food without pork and that he felt at home in the town. So it was interesting to see this process of negotiation at work. That is so interesting. I'm um, so because it does sound like the ideal multicultural place <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, like you know, you wouldn't uh, find such an opening. You know, such an open to other cultures uh, place. Perhaps in Miami you would, um, but but also not in other places in Spain. Um, I was wondering while you were talking about this, how and in relation to my next question, which is about this history of convivencia, if you could also, which is which as you also um, explained before, it's not always been peaceful um, and it's not linear either. I mean, there's places where it is more tolerant or it is more open to have this mixing, and other places aren't uh, like that. But how are, for example, now these British and like you said before, hippie uh, communities that I also saw. Um, increasing in in the city of Granada. I haven't I haven't been in Apujarra for a long time. But in Granada, um it's, it, it is like that. Like you can see how there is a big community of um European, you know, which are not considered immigrants because they are part of the European Union, but they're still also, you know, they still have to run their um documents to <laughs> to be able to live in Spain for a while. I guess I'm not sure. Um, but how is that? How is this history? You know, how is this convivencia experienced over time and in different places? And how is uh, you know kind of the Alpujarra a unique um, place where this comes into you know into being performed and, and experienced? Yeah. So I think I will actually I'll I'll talk about the convivencia a little first, but I want to make sure that I circle back to the hippie communities, because that's an important element that I shouldn't leave out. So I'm, I'm very happy that you use the term non-linear, because the history of Al-Andalus um, in its entirety is very non-linear. I think um, we tend as humans to want to create neat packages and neat stories. So the generalized sort of cleaned up version is that everything was, you know, beautiful <laughs> there and harmonious. Uh, until things started to fall apart and the Reconquista happened. But really, um, the history of Al-Andalus is a constant shift between different uh, caliphates and dynasties and then periods where all that would break apart into tall, small rival kingdoms, the Taifa periods. So when people look back to the, you know, or reference convivencia, they're really usually th- referring to a period that only lasted a little more than a hundred years from the middle of the 10th to the middle of the 11th century with the Caliphate of Cordoba. Uh, And then after that came one of these Taifa periods with small rival kingdoms, another dynasty, another Taifa period. And then by the third uh, uh, more uh, generalized or 
regime, a centralized regime, the Almohads, they, things started to get a little worse for the non-Muslims living there. So there were a lot, a, a fairly significant number of Jews as well as Christians and other, and then also, you know, uh, pagans who were living under Muslim rule during these, this whole long period of, of Al-Andalus. And they were given a sp- special protection, but that included paying a tax. So on the one hand, the political system then was so different from ours today that it's hard to you know make a, any sort of direct analogy. But on the other hand, there were times when there was persecution, particularly in that last um, dynasty, there was persecution of non-Muslims. So it also wasn't always, you know, rainbows and, and butterflies. But what I find particularly interesting about the whole phenomenon of speaking about convivencia is that it demonstrates how strong a desire many people have, luckily, to find diversity and harmony, you know, to tell ourselves, well, in this other previous historical period, people were able to get along. Why can't we? And I think that impulse is what's it's so important because if we keep looking to, even if, you know, our view of that period is erroneous, that impulse to try and find uh, a way to create harmony is really our only hope. Um, and then I wanted to tie that back to uh, the alternative or hippie communities because really the biggest, one of the biggest tensions that I saw in the town was between what you could call the more extreme hippies, the ones living sort of off grid, um, for instance, in a yurt or in a truck uh, parked on the side of a riverbed, uh, who are not part of any official system. You know, they don't pay taxes, they don't um, pay for electricity, etc. And that was the tensions that I saw between that group and all the other groups in the town were the biggest uh, that are that were readily apparent. And so at that point, it's interesting that religion, religious difference became a very much a non-issue. And what concerns most of the people in the town is who is contributing, in their view, is contributing and who is not. And this gets into a lot of what I refer to as civilizational discourses, you know, of who's uh, civilized and who isn't. Um, and ironically, the people from Northern Europe who are living off grid are seen by some members of the community as less civilized. Uh, than the Muslims in the town. So it's a very, there's a lot of interesting contrasts and paradoxes. Then perhaps we could talk about the idea of tolerance and if you could maybe also introduce us into the more theoretical uh, views of this term and this concept and how you applied it to, to your study. Sure. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, uh, tolerance is as a concept is marked by certain paradoxes, and it's really about negotiating boundaries or limits between what will and will not be tolerated. 
So in terms of the uh, theorists who have critiqued the concept of tolerance, their work has largely come out of the study of uh, colonial and neocolonial contexts. And what they've pointed out is that uh, European colonizers would view the colonized as barbaric and in some way, um, you know, unacceptable. Some certain practices of theirs were considered unacceptable, but they were tolerated. In other words, there was a sense that tolerating implies recognizing that there is something distasteful, something unpleasant, something reprehensible even about the other, but that the person with more power will put up with it. And this is problematic because of the hierarchy that it creates. But I think that if we use a different conception of power, we can understand tolerance as something that really can be uh, a useful ideal. So what I mean by this is if we take a, a concept of power that comes from um, the philosopher Foucault, where power is something that moves around it's, uh, and that everyone in, diff- in, their, in their own particular context, most people have at least some realm of their life in which they are able to exert power. So in that regard, tolerance also offers, you know, it's also something that moves around. The opportunities to be tolerant uh, are available to almost everybody. So at that point, it's no longer one person always actively tolerating and the other being tolerated, but we each can take turns uh, being tolerated and tolerating. And part of why this is important is because psychologically, the effect of knowing that you are being tolerated is quite negative because it, it creates feelings of exclusion and hierarchy rather than belonging. And this is why another concept is key to creating what I refer to as sustainable tolerance, and that is recognition. So just to explain what I mean by sustainable tolerance, it's a type of tolerance that can last because it doesn't have inherent tensions built in, uh, or those tensions are at least acknowledged. Because if you have a top-down sort of tolerance in which one group is doing all the tolerating or getting all the recognition for tolerating, it creates, like I said, exclusion, and that is not going to maintain, allow harmony to continue. That's going to interrupt harmony. So recognizing other people's humanity and worth and also the power differentials that are part of the negotiation of tolerance is a way to create longer-lasting tolerance or longer lasting harmony among groups. Um, And one of the uh, contexts that's always uh, brought up by uh, academics who criticize the concept of tolerance is the colonial context, because uh, European colonizers generally would portray the colonized as being barbaric and intolerant. Of course, perhaps they were trying to 
assert the fact that they didn't want this cult, the cultural changes being imposed on them, but they were presented as being uh, intolerant of the Europeans and being incapable of tolerating uh, difference and change. So this, um, you know, has is part of a view of, you know, the civil, the analogy, you know, a belief that civilization is equal to being tolerant, you know, that, and that Europe is the pinnacle of civilization. So all of these ideas come together and have created some difficulties in terms of how to use the term in a positive uh, fashion. And this is also connected to the idea of Orientalism where stereotypes are created about, you know, the vast number of different groups that live in what is referred to as the Orient, you know, uh, from North Africa all the way to East Asia. And one of the stereotypes that uh, supported the colonial projects and supports neo-colonial ones today is that of a strictly conservative, intolerant Muslim. And what is interesting in this little corner of Spain that, um, that I've been studying is that you have some Muslims who are agnostic or who have their own particular way of interpreting what is halal and what is not. And you also have Christian Europeans who have become Muslim. So there, all these fixed categories come undone. Uh, and the assumptions that civilized, tolerant, and European always go together cannot be maintained. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Um, <clears throat> thank you. I have um, my next question um, has been more or less answered. So I was wondering if you could talk um, perhaps of a f couple of more examples of this um, co of, of, of convivencia in Orgiva um, and perhaps in another region of Spain. And then also if you could... Uh, if you know of um, these examples of or these um, places, as if they have been um, used or if they have had any impact in recent perhaps um, public policy, like you mentioned, there is a, a center for uh, unaccompanied minors in the town. If you know how these places that show kind of find a special uh, way of, uh, of experiencing um, multiculturalism if somehow they have um, been used to, to try to, you know, to put forward some kind of um, policy to try to live together <laughs> in other places. Uh, sure. So I don't know of any attempt to draw policy out of it. One sort of the most official recognition that the town has received in that regard is that there was a, I think it was around 2010, um, there was a grant from the regional government to study um, 
sustainability in the broadest interpretation, including, you know, from ecological to cultural sustainability um, in uh, a particular town in Andalusia. And I guess a few different towns were considered and they decided to focus the project in the end on Orjiva and they brought in a team who carried out oral interviews. So it's very interesting what they did and they got uh, all the Partic- all the community members, uh, you know, anybody that they could recruit to participate, not only in voicing their narratives about their experiences in the town, but also in the process of editing this, um, all of these narratives. And they produced um, a book out of it um, called Hablamos de Orjiva. It's very interesting in terms of, you know, what it represents as a process you know, this uh, participation that, uh, that I described, but curiously, the way that the, that the testimonials are presented, it, it erases what the person's background is, unless the person themselves gives some reference, you don't know who it is that's speaking or anything about their background. So it makes it a little hard to figure out exactly what's going on. Plus, um, they mentioned in one of the uh, prefaces that they made the choice due to the request of the, of the participants to standardize people's speech if they were using very um, local uh, forms of Spanish. And this is interesting because another one of the tensions has to do with the very uh, local dialect that certain people still use in the town and standard Spanish. The standard Spanish, for instance, of somebody who has come to the town from Madrid or Barcelona, et cetera. So I found it interesting, that choice. Um, so I feel like in a way it's fascinating because of the, the process that they instituted and the recognition of how um, diverse the town is but is a missed opportunity in the sense that they didn't try to, um, to create a, a more coherent meaning out of this pastiche of, right. of, um, of testimonials. But that's the only sort of official recognition that I know of so far. I do know there's like, I mean, the other examples, there's a couple of examples of places where there's, you know, a, a very striking, uh, you know, meeting of different groups that hasn't gone so well that I that I mention in the book. For instance, in the uh, in the city of Granada, there's um, the the project of the Mezquita Mayor that was founded in 2003. So it's a new grand mosque for the city, and that created a lot of tensions because, you know, people who lived in the local area were opposed to it. Uh, Catholic authorities were opposed to it. Um, and then it sort of revealed tensions between the community of European converts to Islam and the uh, Muslim immigrants. So it was a, an interesting contrast Um to how things were done in Ortiva, but of course the the stakes were very different and the, the demographics too, in terms of the numbers of uh, Muslims versus 
Christians in the area. Um, and then there's also the controversy surrounding the Mezquita Catedral in Cordoba. Another town which would really be fascinating to study is um, another town in Granada called Puebla de Don Fadrique. It's much, I mean, it's a bit smaller than Orjiva. It has around 2,000 or 3,000 inhabitants. But it is the home to a Muslim center um, called Alqueria de Rosales that was built in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, it's a center that uh, hosts retreats and workshops um, and also carries out research in Arabic manuscripts. So it's a very interesting um, center in and of itself. But the fact that it's in this small town in the province of Granada, I think it would be fascinating to see how I haven't visited it yet, but it's on my list of places to go. Wonderful. Uh, so talking about uh, lists, and since you just published um, Hamon and Halal, could you tell us what you're currently working on? Sure. Um, I would say, I guess, that my pro- I have two projects going now that um, have to do with Cuba and historical memory. One is an article that's actually going to come out soon on a canonical 19th century Cuban novel and how it is referenced in literary and artistic works today and uh, connected through those works to migration. And the other one has to do with um, how 19th century Cubans related to North Africa, because this was a time when both Cuba as well as Puerto Rico and these uh, small colonies in, in North Africa were the only remaining Uh, colonial possessions of Spain and certain Cuban authors noticed this and wrote about North Africa and they often have references to Al-Andalus and the Reconquista when they write about North Africa. So again, it's how the past is used in a subsequent period. Um, In this case, it's the 19th century looking back at uh, the medieval and early modern period. And I just finished a translation of a short story um, that was, I co-translated it with a colleague from a a Moroccan writer called uh, Abdel Fateh Kilito. Um, And it's fascinating also, again, the idea of contact because he writes, the whole story is focused on the idea of how Arabic and French cohabitate in Morocco. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What, so it is a translation from um, Arabic to English, or actually, this in this case is from French because this author uh, writes sometimes in Arabic and sometimes in French. He's a bit unusual in that regard. Hmm. Most Moroccan writers either write in one or the other, but he switches depending on the work. But in a way, you could say that it's Arabic in French <laughs> because. Of- because of the way he, he plays with the language. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, well, I hope we hear more about all these uh, new works in New Books Network. And with this, I'm going to uh, thank you very much for having been with us today. 
Thank you for having me here. It was a pleasure. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez. I am a host of the MBN. I'm also co-editor and host of New Books Network in Español, where you will actually, where you can find an interview with Dr. Cristina Sivantos in Spanish. Today, we talked about a superb book, Hamon and Halal, Lessons in Tolerance from Rural Andalusia. I have to say the Andalusia with accent and the C in the title made me really happy. <laughs> um, published in 2022 with Amherst College. This book is open access and I will leave a link in the um, interview post. Thank you everyone for listening.